Hello everybody, welcome to episode number 13 of the Wimlex podcast. We're very happy to be here in London today and have with us Hugo Jenkins. He's the commercial director of Truva. And Truva is an online marketplace helping independent boutiques sell uh, more online. And they, uh, uh, as Alexander just called it, um, are maybe the savior of uh, the retail shops, especially the smaller ones. Or maybe not. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, delighted that you're here with us, uh, Hugo. Could you explain a little bit more what Truva is and what problem you're solving? Sure. So marketplace is definitely one piece of it. I'd say that the other piece is, is, is platform. Um, so, um, and actually the business's genesis was all about helping shops to small independent shops to manage their inventory in real time and then also make that inventory shoppable online. So we have a platform which enables shops to uh, kind of represent themselves in the online space. And these are all specifically bricks and mortar independent shops across various different categories. Um, and also we're very selective about the shops that we work with. So we're kind of selecting for ones who are really great at curating exceptional product ranges and also creating great offline experiences. So we, um, we give them um, a space and the technology to, to um, upload various different things. So from um, information about their shop, who they are, where it is, their background, their story, what they stand for, their, their brand values, and lots of other content like that. Um, but then also we have the technology to enable them to upload all of their product. Um, so take stuff that's hidden on the shelves of their shops and make it um, shoppable online. That's first part, which is the technology piece, which is a, a big chunk of our business. Um, and then the second part then is we connect them through our marketplace to customers all over the world. Um, we also try to make, when they do get sales, and, and they tend to get quite a lot of sales, um, we also try to make that as easy as possible for them. So uh, we deal with the... Uh, logistics so we will route the different orders through to the, the, the best logistics carrier for that specific order um, we will deal with the payment handling um, you know uh, transit protection for protection um, we have a seven day a week customer service team so kind of we're always there to make sure that the the right product gets to the right customer in the, in the right time frame um, so the idea is it, it frees these amazing small shops to, to kind of get on with what they do best which is to curate a, a really exceptional product range that's really appealing to our customers um, and then also manage their offline experience and their in-store customer service. But we can then bolt on all of the technology and the demand that they need to be able to sell online. I think the other thing is it, it's very, very hard. or It's impossible for a small shop to drive efficient traffic to their website. Like It's a really hard thing to do. I think there's... We look kind of five, ten years ago, everyone decided they needed a website, including a lot of these these small shop owners. And there was, I think, a bit of a a bit of a preconception that if if they build it, they will come. So a lot of them kind of engaged, you know, um, uh, web building agencies to build them like basic websites, and they kind of had it, and then they had it. You know, they they did a big launch, and they were really excited, and then the kind of website sat there, and obviously no one came to visit it. <laughs> Why were they going to? Um, you know, we talked to to a lot of shops and they said oh no we have a website we have a web presence you know we don't need 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 one like, okay well you know what volume of sales have you done and like, oh yeah we did five sales last year yeah. <laughs> and, you know so it's that it's that kind of um world that we're moving away from the idea being that actually if if they all become a network and a community together actually they're way way stronger and we have we have therefore the ability to, and the investment in marketing to, to kind of help them to compete online versus much much bigger 
players. Can you can can you tell us a little bit more about like the backgrounds of Truva? So how many people are working there? What kind of markets are you uh, um, in? Uh, markets are you active? What kind of shop owners are active on Truva? Because um, how you describe it, it, it reminds me a little bit of Farfetch. Uh, uh, um, of course, they are very active in luxury segment, but it, it, it seems to be very similar, uh, very similar problem to the shop owners. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, um, and I understood a little bit like the USP. For the shop owner, what I didn't get is like, why should people come to your website buying there? Yeah. Um, and but maybe we can start with like the more KPI pillars of Truver to, uh, and we have a lot of German uh, uh, listeners, a lot of like um, Dutch listeners, um, just to get a like better understanding. Is it kind of an eBay for small boutiques? Is it kind of a of a, um, of a, a far-fetched competitor? Is it kind of just to get a little bit? We, we need sure. to put it in a box. Okay. Somehow. There's a lot of questions there. Let me try and break them down a bit. So. Truva in our background, so so as I said, we started the technology, we actually started as a different business called um, Street Hub um, back in 2013, um, and um, our co-founder Deep and, and uh, other co-founder Alex um, kind of came at it from a perspective of, uh, Mandeep was working in um, in a consultancy for, for big retail, and he was seeing mm. all these like efforts that the, the, the kind of big behemoth retailers were making into trying to attempt a version of Omnichannel, and he was like, Firstly, there's so much legacy. It's like turning an oil tanker. This is going to be really, really slow. Um, and secondly, who's doing it for the small guys? And the big advantage the small guys have is that they are small, so they're much more agile. Um, and that's where, and he came up with the original proposition, which was called Street Hub, which was the technology was similar, which was to take this offline inventory and be able to represent it online. Um, but the model was different. So the idea was to create additional local demand for those shops so mm. it's app based you download the app if you want to find a lamp in your town you find a lamp and it tells you what shops have different lamps in stock and then it's you go little, buy them the pitch of local google shopping lamp. yeah yeah exactly yeah. exactly mm. um and, and and it kind of was that but it was all all in house at street hub um it, it worked to an extent like it, it was it was quite quite um exciting for the shops to feel like they were driving more footfall um but it was quite hard to prove causality that like this yeah. person was on yeah, the app yeah. and then wandered yeah. into that shop and it was a subscription-based model um street hub didn't own the transaction and it, it actually got a lot of of, um, of app downloads but it, yep. it, it wasn't a scalable model and it was that flip of okay well look, what we're doing at the moment is trying to generate additional local demand what if actually rather than connect the shops to more local demand actually we open up their demand globally and that was when we led the marketplace on top the business pivoted became Truva and that's where like you know the rocket ship took off and and, and the business started growing really 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 quickly um, at the moment I think so we, we're we're right in peak kind of sales days at the moment we're not a gifting site so we don't completely you know we're not one that does 50% of our revenue in a month or something but we do have a bit of a peak in December uh, where we bring in extra customers who are also doing gifting purchases um, I think at our peak we'll be 99 people um, in the next couple of weeks we'll scale down a little bit after, after Christmas but we scale down for a month or two and then it starts to, to grow a bit uh, we in terms of where those people are most of them are in our HQ in London but we also I think like two and a half years ago launched a tech hub down in Lisbon um, in order to be able to acquire really good engineering talent that isn't outrageously expensive, um, and that's and that's living in the EU. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And that <laughs> may have a little bit. That's of another topic something to do with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, touch upon that today. Yeah, and then we now also have. So we, we've started to bring on board um, a few shops across 
kind of handpicked shops across some of Europe's capitals. So we also now have a few business developers out in market in, in different places around Europe at the moment. Which countries are you and cities? So um, we started off in Germany, in Berlin, beginning of the year. Um, and we now have shops in um, Berlin and a, and a couple of other German cities, Munich and Hamburg. Um, and then uh, as of today, we announced our launch on the supply side, so the shop side specifically in uh, Madrid, um, Amsterdam and Copenhagen. Um, and then there's a bit of a list of other places where we're starting to sign up shops, but we haven't yet necessarily announced that publicly yet. But if you were to be a sleuth and you went on the website and you went all, every single boutique is listed there, <laughs> I mean, you could, if you had the time, figure it out. So you're responsible for the commercial side of Truva, and if I uh, look at the amount of products you have on offer, I think it's about 90,000 already, um, maybe even more now. Significantly more now. Significantly yeah, more. Yeah, as of the last four months. Yeah, because yeah. you've increased the amount of boutiques. Yeah. You have a lot of boutiques here in the UK, yeah. also in, in, in Germany and in the new cities and countries that you explained. Yeah. Um, if you look at, at sales volumes, um, Chris Anderson wrote an incredible book in uh, 2005, I think it was, called The Long Tail. Yeah. And he, he, he was actually explaining, well, uh, the internet is helping people find these, these niche products that mm -hmm. you couldn't find in a, in a warehouse in the center of London back then. Uh, I think you're an, uh, yeah, a typical company that uh, would have been explained as a case study in uh, Chris Anderson's book. Um, if you look at the, 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 the sales volume, do you really see that, that the niche products that are not available in, say, Net-A-Porter or Zalando are the best-selling products on, on Truva? Or uh, do you see uh, a lot of uptake of, of, of mainstream brands sold through your boutique shops? It's a real mix. Um, as we've grown, we're finding our... So, I get... Well... So I guess the, the simplified way to look at it, and obviously it's like shades of grey, but um, a lot of our shops do actually have quite a lot of branded product in them, but they are, um, you know, they're selections of really interesting design-led brands, but they're reasonably well-known if you know about homeware stuff. So whether it's like know, Firm Living or Brost or Hay or whoever else, um, those, those brands generate search volumes. We can buy the keywords on those brand names um, which is a small part of our digital marketing strategy, um, and that that will pull customers onto the site. So it, typically, that's that's finding people on the internet and bringing them okay. on to, to Truva. For the um, first conversions. Yeah, so for that that's a great way to to bring new people into our database of customers. Um, but then I think actually, if you look at the customers who come back very often, then they start buying from less well-known brands from local artisans that the shops stock. So I think they're. And how do you curate that? The returning visitors and the returning buyers. What's your uh, strategy uh, on, on uh, getting loyalty from your first client? Sure. So I think it's all about the story of the shops. So that's why I led shop first. Um, and um, you know, you mentioned what's, what then then is the benefit for the consumer. Why is it so so exciting or interesting for them? I think that you know we have well over ninety thousand. You know, not quite double that, but nearly now products on the site. But if you think about each of those products. We will only list that product if it's on the shelf of one of our shops. Um, those shops are quite small. They only have you know 10 meters of shelf space in their shop. It's run by someone who's really, really passionate. They're an owner of a business. They're an entrepreneur. It's really hard to get to a point where you're running a really cool, great, well-known, highly curated offline experience bricks and mortar shop. So they've gone through a lot of you know, due diligence to get to a point where they're running that shop. And one of the things they're very, very good at is curating an exceptional product range. So they're in a world where they really care about the products they stock. They're experts at 
figuring out where to get them and what the trends are and what you know what what products they want to have on the shelves and they're restricted by the physical space that means however many products we have on the site typically we have a buyer for every couple of hundred and that buyer is one of our shop owners and that buyer is an exceptional person at buying essentially and they're very very motivated because they're motivated by you know equity rather than salary um, so that means that as you scale up in aggregate if you look at all the products on the site it doesn't matter how many have as long as we're only bringing on really great shopkeepers who are great for creating product range every single one of them has been handpicked and i think that's the magic of the business and then if you if you kind of flip that and think okay well how are people then shopping on the site how do we curate that experience of returning our bet we're making is that the shop sit very much at the center of that people will want to and, and look we're not we're not replacing the offline experience of the shops but we're trying to augment it we're trying to find ways that you can can replicate a bit of that experience of walking into an amazing little shop on the you know the lanes in Brighton or in Kreuzberg in Berlin and you know go and look at the shelves see how the products are all curated and edited together have a chat to the shop owner of where they've got them from where they've sourced them what might go with what so we're trying to take bits of that and put them online in the end that means we're trying to create a, a different type of e-commerce experience it's a, it's a discovery experience and it's very counter to you know, some of the really big e-commerce sites um, whose job is to remove all friction from the sales funnel what kind of products we are talking about so um so you mentioned farfetch uh, which is an interesting analogy and actually of all the businesses we get compared to it probably is one that's one of the most relevant um i think if you think farfetch is known for luxury fashion we're known for premium homewares um we do have shops with other categories but but um premium homewares yeah because it's premium versus luxury so it's not not it's quite like a, as high a price wmf point frying pan for example or? Mm, it's more the design-led homewares it's more okay. like you know tablewares and okay. lamps and um no i i i i i i really just hope i i i'm 100 convinced that it's hope it's going to work on the um selling side for uh the shop owners because the market has proven that none of the small shop owners is able to to run a big website mm -hmm. they are even They have even a hard time to set up like the Google Business uh, uh, page, which usually like takes five minutes <laughs> yeah. for guys from uh, or with our background. But it's it's hard for them. It's yeah. not not at all native. Uh, and then with all the regulations coming up and all the discussions around it, it's it's really hard for them. So I, I think it's easy to convince like uh, the shop owners uh, because uh, footfall is usually like uh, decreasing in uh, in most of the most of the areas, uh, even in central London areas. Um, but what, what I'm a little bit, like curious about is so what is what is then the um, for me as a customer. Um, I'm 100% convinced that all the stuff I'm buying and which is like movable is coming from China ultimately and uh, um, I can find everything on Aliexpress uh, Banggood or other web on other mm -hmm. websites so um, why apart from uh, having uh, some sentimental feelings for my local dealer and you shouldn't go bankrupt which is like the reason I hear a lot in, uh, in television discussions so Why should I go to Truva, buy something from uh, from a local shop owner? Maybe you can explain, do I see like the shop owner? Do I see only the product? Or do I see like this is a seller, this is yep. a story? Is it shipped by the owner? Is it shipped by user? What is like the, the customer USP? I, 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 I understand 100% the USP for the shop owners. Yep. I don't get the USP for the customer. So let's, let's say two parts. So we did a lot of customer insight work. So I was saying like a lot of e-commerce businesses are trying to remove all friction from the funnel like in you know if you're buying coffee pots from amazon say like 
in a perfect world, you don't even go to the website, you just press a button and they come. Or even better, your coffee machine knows that you've run out and just orders them for you, you don't even think about it. Actually talking to our, our customer base and thinking about what, what they want from their experience on Truva, um, most of them are professionals, but they see them, so they're not just kind of straight creators, but they see themselves as having some adjacency to creativity. They, they feel like they want to be able to express themselves creatively in some way. Probably a lot of them feel like one day they would love to own a little shop in you know, Kreuzberg or Stoke Newington or whatever. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Maybe they do potty class on the weekend. Um, there's a, there's, they almost see shopping on Truva a bit like one of those creative outlets. It's a bit of a hobby for them. So actually, we're not trying to remove all friction from the sales funnel. We're actually putting some back in on purpose, but it's got to be the right type of friction. And the type of friction we're trying to create is discovery friction. It's an experience where you go on, you explore. You might often, you very often might go to Truva and not know what you want which is the same as when you're walking into one of these little shops and you're looking on the shelves and you fall in love with the product. And the way that we are doing that is, is through content from the boutique. So every boutique has their own page where they have a lot of control of, of mm. what sits there. Um, and that's um, on the website. It's also augmented by all of our other channels. So they, we do social media takeovers where shops can take over our Instagram feed for a week, for example, and show like inner workings of the shop, who they are, where, what their buying trips are like, where they get their products from. We do a lot of... Um, interviews and content and blog posts and videos. We've done events in the shop where we've invited, in different shops, we've invited some of our VIP customers, some of their VIP customers will do like a panel about homewares trends and things like that. So so I think what that where that ends up, think of this, this, this discovery experience online, is it's a bit like um, you know putting together your perfect virtual high street of all of the independent shops that, that you love the most. And so I think there'll be a lot of, there's a lot of customers who will follow different boutiques. Um, you know, that enables us, for example, to do notifications where that shopkeeper brings in new product. I live up in um, Stoke Newington, which is like a little kind of village type area of, in North London. Um, and there's a few shops that I, I know I just, I really trust the shopkeepers to, to understand my taste and to kind of, well, I probably actually have much better taste than me and kind of keep me caught up with what's going on. And I know if I walk into those shops once a season and kind of look at the shelves, they would have brought in, you know, some returning products from brands that I'm familiar with. They would have brought in some new brands. They would have picked a subset of the products from brands that I really, really, that are much more interesting or potentially identify with. I, I know that if I keep going back to that, those set of shops that's like it's like a bit of me it's like that that's where I will find a set of products that I identify with and I'll be able to buy a load of stuff that I want I think more and more customers will start shopping on on Truva like that you know they will have a set of shops that they follow and that they like and when they come back they'll go and see what new products have come in from those shopkeepers they'll be linked to you know videos or or um, interviews with those shopkeepers or, or uh, blog posts about them or they'll then link to their Instagram feed and see what you know um where they've been on their buying trip recently to Morocco. That's we're making a bet that we are the, the stories of the shopkeepers are a great way for people to start segmenting and cutting down our overall product range to a bunch of products that will really, really suit them. And I think that is um, a big difference between us and Farfetch. And this is I don't you know I was talking about someone else's business, but um, I think they're Farfetch is in a world where they they kind of pretty much knew what brands they wanted to work with. You know, they knew what luxury fashion brands they wanted to work with. One of the ways that they could get that stock was by working with the boutiques that stocked them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they kind of probably always had a bit of a list of, of who their top brands were. Yeah. We're actually kind of putting ourselves behind a bit of a veil of ignorance. We're saying we, we don't know what the best homewares brands are. We don't know what the best products are. Now, we have information and data that we've, we're very open with. And we feedback to the shops of what we're seeing on our side. But actually what we're saying is the shops know better. 
So it might be that the brands that they stock right now and that are selling really well might be completely different in six months or 12 months. But we're not going to worry about that. We're going to let them worry about that. It's our job to pick the shops and then it's their job to pick the products. And if it's a product that gets onto their shelves, it's a product that gets onto the Okay, I know that Willem was always uh, dreaming about uh, setting up a boutique store in Amsterdam uh, selling designer lamps, <laughs> well, calling it, like yeah. the, the shining poffertjes. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> let's say he has such a store with, yeah. uh, with, a, with a decent footfold and uh, so such stores usually have like a half a million to like two billion million in uh, in revenue per, per year. Two million a pretty decent, decent yeah. size independent shop. Yeah, but but you you should uh, you should see the rents in in Amsterdam. So yeah. <laughs> you need like two million just to pay it. Yeah, so yeah. Same in what, what, What's in it for him listing his uh, uh, his uh, his product range uh, on Truva? I guess the way I see it is there. You you know you kind of alluded to it. There's a ton of fixed cost involved in in um, opening a shop. So your business ends up being very, very geared and very sensitive to small changes in that fixed cost base. You yep. know, if your landlord comes back and puts your rent up, quite often that's that's most of your operating profit gone. And typically, if you own the shop, your operating profit is your salary. Like it's it's real world stuff. Like this is like if if these changes happen, or if footfall goes down by 15 percent, potentially, you know, we're stuck with all this stock. You've got this this asset that's costing you loads of money, and it, it's not efficient. In a sense, they're very basic. We're helping them to sweat those assets and make them more efficient. Yeah. Um, by and you know our cost is all variable, so they're 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 only paying commission on sales. Mm. So actually, it, it's it 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 reduces the gearing of their business, um, and also and it opens up their shop. It removes the need for you know, geo co-location. It means that suddenly they rather than just have customers who are going to walk into their shop in Amsterdam, they have customers all over the world, and that's what we've been able to do when we brought on shops in in other markets is. You know, we, we we tend to separate supply and demand a bit. So we, yeah. we you know we don't necessarily go after a market and get the demand of the supply at the same time. What we're doing in Amsterdam, for example, is going in and connecting those shops to the pre-existing demand and database of you know a couple of hundred thousand customers we already have. And so often within the first few days, you know, they've we've had feedback where they've they've sent a, a shipment to the UK, but they've also sent one out to the US or Australia or Germany or wherever else. And so very quickly they see that we've just it's like suddenly opening up their shop window to the entire world rather than relying on the people who are just walking past it on the street and zooming in on the selection process of yeah. those shops like the boutique that i uh, fancy yeah. to have in amsterdam yeah. shining um, poffertjes is in there i'm, I'm pretty sure there's actually we're in a location uh, listeners where next door there's a, a pancake house oh yeah pancake house <laughs> yeah. so we can have lunch there alex <laughs> um, so uh, question about the the selection process of yeah. those boutiques you said that's the role the curation is role of, of of you at Truva. Uh, we actually did a podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, Michiel Muller, who's the co-founder of Picnic, yeah. uh, an online supermarket similar to Ocado here in the UK. And he was saying, well, I don't know what products are out there in the market and the differences between regions are huge. So what they did is in the app, they opened the opportunity for their loyal community to uh, yeah. give suggestions yeah, yeah, to, to new products to be added to their, uh, uh, yeah, their, their supermarket. Yeah. Is there, I, I can imagine that your community is, is uh, very loyal to Truva as well, if they are in a discovery phase and using it often. Are you interacting with that community uh, to find yeah. new boutiques? And we, we always ask customers, and from, from, um, from day one, you've been able to submit a um, suggestion of your favorite shop anywhere in the world. So, so actually, even when we were just in the UK, we were starting to build this database of shops that we knew our customers loved. So that's one group who's very useful to us in informing us on, on what other shops there are that could should potentially be on Truva. Um, the other group who's very good are actually the other shops. 
Um, so there's potentially, you know, a preconception that they probably all feel very competitive with each other. And sometimes there is a little bit of competition, you know, when they're, if they are both stocking this, uh, the same products from the same brand, but actually mostly they're, they're a real gang. Like they all know each other. They all like each other, all friends with each other. Mm. And, and so that's, it has a twofold benefit for us, which is firstly, it helps, you know, sh- people who run really nice shops know the other people who run the really nice shops. And they're very good at advising us on that. But also, they then become an ambassador for us. You know, if, they've, if they're on Truven, they've had a great experience and they tell the shop down the road or the shop that's their friend that they met a, you know, a, a, a buying trade show or something, and they say, you must be on Truven because it's great. That's the most authentic recommendation we can have. Um, and actually, that's, as we move from a more mature market in the UK where most of the shops we want to work with know about us and we've kind of maybe spoken to them. We have a great track record. We have the shop down the road. They've read about us in the press. So actually in the UK, most of the shops who now join have come to us. So they, they, they apply to join essentially and then we make a call as to whether it's a good fit. Um, what we're doing in new markets when we're acquiring the first kind of bits of supply in a new market where we don't have that track record actually is trying to build that trust really quick. So typically if we're, you know, when we went to Amsterdam, for example, we actually took a couple of our UK shop owners over with us on the roadshow and just, you know, when we were walking into shops and chatting to them, actually we'd, we'd, we'd bring a shop and say, look, just talk to them about how it is because it's the most authentic voice. Um, and we hosted an event and we did a panel talking about future of retail and things with those guys. And actually they, it's, you know, it's nice, it's nice to hear them talk about us because they don't, they don't, they're not selling on our behalf. They just tell it how it is. And so it's a really nice, authentic, balanced view. What is it, what is it criteria to uh, get on Truva? In, so it's a little amorphous, I'd say. And we, very, we do regular alignment across the senior team where we will, we will sample check once every couple of months. We'll take like 10, 15 shops. We'll look at the decisions we made on them and everyone will have their say okay. on like, you know, what, what would be good or what would yeah. be, whether it was a good fit or not. Amazingly, we always end up really much more aligned than we expect we would. Oh, yeah? You know, quite a lot of <laughs> strong personalities in the team. Um, I think could, could you give an example, though, when there was not such an alignment, saying, okay, here's like, a, here's like a, um, a shop or like an experience we don't want to have like in the future? Yeah, we work with... Um, we work with a, uh, uh, we, we kind of tested, I guess, this was a year and a half ago, so we probably knew a lot less about the business. We uh, worked with a trainer shop that just had a lot of like the big brands of trainers in Nike, Adidas, those guys. Um, and actually, very quickly, they were doing a lot of revenue on the site. Now, we have a very sophisticated digital marketing team who were acquiring the traffic for those trainers and we were selling them and you know they were making a lot of revenue. Uh, but actually, if you look at the lifetime value of those customers, they're not, they're not the people who are going to come back and shop off other independent boutiques. They just want to come yeah. and get a good deal on a trainer. So, um, you know, given our acquisition costs, typically we don't make money on the first sale. So, and if, they're not, if there isn't going to be a second sale, we're just, we're just subsidizing those orders. So it doesn't make any sense. So that was a, a good lesson for us. And actually what I'm very proud of, and I think what's really good is that we decided to end that relationship early, which is a hard thing for an early stage startup to do because they were generating a chunk of revenue. To, to make a call to actually say, you know, it's not just about hockey stick curves, it's also about making, you know, LTV over CAC, was quite, I felt like, like we're in this for the right reasons, you know, we're trying to build a long-term business. Um, I think the other, you know, so in terms of if I could categorize how we, we pick the shops, I think most important thing is do they, do they have a great product range that our customers will love? Um, we can, you know, we can use some indicators of like a subset of their range. So typically, so one way to filter early in a new market where we don't know that much about the market is say, okay, do they stock 
in their within their range do they stock some of the brands that we know sell really well and if they do it's probably a pretty good bet that then the rest of their range is the kind of stuff that would also sell well unless they have a weird portfolio of products where they have some really great homewares brands and then a bunch of weird stuff but that's that happens very rarely um so i think product selection is is first and foremost after that it's it gets a little bit more esoteric it's like do they have a great offline experience? Is their shop beautiful? Do they have a great story? Do they stand for something as a brand? Like how do they, what filter do they apply to all of the world's products to pick the, handpick the ones they're gonna have? Um, and I think probably if you look at the, the, within the team, the crossover there goes, you know, my, so my commercial hat is always like, can we sell lots of the products? And then our creative director's hat is more like, can I create great content and great stories for our customers? And mostly we can do both, I guess, on the margin the bit is where where we have more of a discussion about it is if if one of those things is really strong and one of them slightly less strong then we start making a call and how do you decide let's say you have um i don't know how to call it in each like pen storage device i don't know (laughs) (laughs) you have like more like a pen tray tray, i'm gonna say uh, uh, and, and you have like five uh, 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 five uh, boutiques offering the same uh, pen tray. So uh, how does the customer journey looks like so when you find your pen tray on your website? Do they find it like, do they have like a list of, this is like five stores that could be like your uh, that, like so suppliers? let's take two typical customer journeys. First, if they type pen tray into Google or they type, let's say it's a branded pen tray, they type brand name pen tray yeah then typically if we're buying keywords on that then they will get pushed to a product page of one of the shops we um we route that demand across the different shops who have that product so they all get a fair share of it if you're a customer then you've gone to the product page so you don't see lots and lots of versions ah, okay. of that product page you only see the one that you've ended up being routed to hopefully then you click on the link to the shop and then you start shopping the rest of the range and then you fall in love with it and then you think oh what's this true thing and then you start shopping all the different shops but even if you don't you buy that pen tray and then we'll start, you know, marketing to you. And, and if you search Pentray on the Trufa, so that's the other the flip side is if um, if you're on Trufa and you know you want a Pentray from Trufa, you don't know where you want it from, and let's say you're not someone who's shopping by boutique, you're shopping by product. Yeah. Then if you type Pentray, are uh, are uh, you'll probably end up with a few pages of products I expect. What our algorithm will do? Well, if there is the same product, it will spread it out. So one of, if one of them's on page one, the other one will be on page seven so you don't see them all next to each other and how does the, the algorithm behind that work how do you select which one to depict uh using magical technical juju <laughs> <laughs> i'm not an algorithm guy okay. um i don't know the exact there are of, algorithms behind it that, yeah that, yeah yeah, uh, that, yeah. That, and there are lots work. and actually that's where that's a big focus on the business where you know, early stage we um you know, how the website looked to a customer was very much based on like static decisions we made when we listed the product, like we, we applied a quality score to it, for example. Okay. We're now much more moving to a world where actually we learn about the customer, what they're searching for, what they like, what they're looking for, and then they start getting a personalized version of, of, okay. of products that we think they'd like from boutiques they think mm. they'd like, or suggest boutiques that are similar to ones they like, or if they start shopping trends, like it looks like they really like concrete stuff, we'll start suggesting more concrete products. So actually there's, a, there's um, you know, we're moving much more to a world of, personalization where you start seeing it's like it's the that golden end state i was talking about where eventually you have your your perfect dream high street and your shop you can kind of walk along it and shop all the different shops it may be that one of those shops is in shibuya in tokyo and one of them's in kreuzberg berlin and etc cetera, etc cetera, but you don't necessarily need to feel it because you can explore them all is it, so, is, it, is it is it possible maybe one question because of the ranking algorithm is it possible because other other uh, websites are seeing themselves uh, or perceiving themselves as a platform 
even Zalando or Amazon, and you and they are selling you ad specs to uh, to uh, to um, to to put in some banners, advertise maybe for your product, or in this case maybe for uh, for a boutique. Are you offering this already? Are you planning to offer this? We're not, and it's like, who knows what the future may hold. But right now, that probably potentially makes more sense where you've got commodity products and so mm. it's just a case of who which product's going to make you more money whereas we don't we have you know discovery journeys so actually right now it doesn't make sense to figure what we don't right now it doesn't make sense for if a person's willing to pay more they get they get more it's much more a case of what products can we show the customer that are going to make them really happy make them shop again and again and maximize our conversion and, and how do you how does that I mean I know you're not a tech guy yeah uh, just curious because I mean personalization is a buzzword for many of our listeners as yep. well and everybody's struggling a little bit on how to manage data uh, how to collect data and how to um, make use of that data that the customer journey is actually uh, advanced for, mm -hmm. for a user um, how do you do your data management is there like a platform in place a DMP uh, so-called DMP or is that something you You've developed your own uh, tooling for. We've yeah, so most stuff we've developed in house. We're very lucky. We have a technical co-founder um, who's just genius, <laughs> basically, um, and that really helps because he, you know, he built everything from scratch ourselves. Okay. Um, we are in the middle of moving from one data warehouse to another. It's not something that I'm necessarily involved in. Um, and then we are we're really beefing up our analytics team. So if you think of like broadly what our engineering our product team are doing, they are they're basically building building the services that power the marketplace. Um, and that could be, for example, how we manage logistics. So we will route um, every package through to the right courier and get it delivered efficiently. We'll make sure that that tracking is really on point. We'll make sure that if there's issues, we can track them early and we can intervene where we need to. Like that's that's actually a really complicated, difficult thing to build. And look, right now it's only being applied to Truva, but you know, we're building this technology at the moment. Um, you know, another uh, piece of technology is is real-time inventory management. We have such a user-friendly way to upload products and keep them up to date. Up to date. Um, so you know, quite often our shops are going through a world where they're keeping stock in a book. Like they're literally physically writing down what what they've sold that day, or even they're just looking at the shelf. And when the shelf's empty, they think, "Oh, I should probably order some more of that stuff." So we're taking them from well, we're actually we're taking those people and creating a um, a tool that's it's easy enough for them to use that they're very happy to it suddenly gives them real-time inventory data we can then use that data to help start feeding that useful information to them so we can look at their velocity of sales like if they're managing their in-store stock and their true well they have they have one source of truth for their stock we can see their in-store sales and we can also see their true sales we can start predicting when they're going to go out of stock of certain ranges based on their velocity of sales if you then also apply a lead time that you know that supplier has, then we can tell them very with, with you know quite decent amount of confidence. Actually, you should start thinking about buying in more of those products now. So you miss that month where that shelf's just sat there empty. So it suddenly makes their business way way more efficient. Um, so I think, yeah, like I think what what the technology team is focused on is thinking about what what are the underlying things that need to be slotted into these businesses to make them be able to do this stuff really effectively and efficiently. Maybe that's an unfair question, but I'm still struggling about like the omnichannel approach because if if we do look in our own Amazon accounts, it, it, it's a pretty clear path. It's not uh, it's not uh, 
pointing into a hopeful direction for uh, um, uh, shop owners. So when you when you look at your own shopping behavior, so um, and and uh, you're probably living in London, uh, which in, in UK is. Um, other than Amsterdam, <laughs> as I've learned, uh, uh, um, a very important Amazon market. So, uh, how, how many times are you shopping stuff at at websites like an Amazon? So, which are not like curating content, which are just giving you access uh, to uh, to merchandise, and you just click on buy without mm. having the inspirational process. For products that I don't really care about that much, products that just make my life work or efficient all the time. So I love Amazon. I think it's amazing. Like it's a super easy way to get the stuff that I want when I want it. And I will get my coffee pods from Amazon, but I don't buy my clothes from Amazon. I don't buy a nice pot to sit on the shelf in my house from Amazon. Hmm. Um, and, I, and actually, um, I think that the, in the end, what it comes down to, and, and if you talk to our customer what they're, they're looking for and you read between the lines a bit, when someone comes to their house for a dinner party, they don't want that person to say, oh, I've got that lamp whether it's from Amazon or Ikea or wherever else, like what they want that person says, where did you get that lamp? That's really cool. And then that person wants to have the right to say, oh yeah, I got it from this really cool little boutique in Kreuzberg in Berlin. And oh, it's run by, um, you know, Hank and Maria and they do all their sourcing from a rock Another lamp example, you see? Another lamp example, yeah. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think that's the difference is that they don't, they don't get to say that if they bought that thing on Amazon. And everyone has that thing. Like no one, no one wants to show off a bit about that. What they want is to say, I have gone and I've applied my taste and I've explored and I've discovered and I've found this person who's created this great range of products and I've bought it from it. I know where it's come from. I know the story. And I've been quite clever in doing that. So I get to show off about it. So I don't, it's not, it's not a case of Amazon or True, but it's a case of a divergence yeah. between what you're shopping for and what that thing you're buying means to you. And if, if you look then... Uh, to marketing of Truva, I think uh, what is a big difference compared to you and Amazon is that Amazon puts their brand on everything. It's an Amazon world that we live in. Whereas you, I think, are more modest and you will, would want to have the boutique yeah. as the primary uh, spokesperson the, to, to, to your clients. We want the shops to feel like these are their customers. Yeah. We want the customers to feel like they're the boutique's customer. We're just facilitating the whole thing. You know, we are, and, and that's why we love it. We get stories all the time where you know we've, we've had... I remember one a couple of months ago, it was a, from an American family who said that they had discovered Truva and they'd found these great shops in Brighton and then their family was coming on holiday to London and they decided to make the trip down to Brighton for the day to go shop those shops where they'd, 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 they'd um, fallen in love with the products and the people who ran them and they went and met them and talked to them and they probably bought a load of stuff then but you know what, they probably didn't want to ship most of that stuff or take most of that stuff on the plane so then they got back home and then they went back to Truva and then shopped more from those shops and they'd become a loyal customer of that shop and they visited it in person, they've met the person, but now also that's augmented by the fact that they can also buy that stuff online. So it's those two things working together. We don't see them as conflicting. So, and we have a lot of uh, shop owners listening this uh, this show because it's a show about commerce and, uh, and retail. So is there something uh, uh, you, you want to tell them? So should they all apply uh, uh, with the, with the uh, Truva slash uh, setting up a new shop or whatever service? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, I think what I... I think what I'd say is... And you could offer is, them a voucher. Maybe that's either... That's, <laughs> well, the version is better. Yeah, don't, don't send me an email. That's yeah. what I can do. Um, and I think there's, there's a... There's a what's, and we were discussing this briefly before the podcast. Um, one thing that's interesting is the, the UK is quite... Is a bit more mature. Like, e-commerce penetration is quite high. We've had Amazon for a long time. Like, it is... It's almost taken as a given in the UK that you, you have to be... 
you have to supplement your offline business by selling online. It's like becoming, it's yeah. getting to that point, particularly the shops we've spoken to and particularly the shops on Trube have now realised that, you know, this is a way for them to pay their rent quite often. So actually they can just get on with running their shop and these, a lot of these big, chunky, difficult fixed costs are, are taken care of. Moving to other shops in, in other markets in Europe, it's, it, sometimes it's like a slightly different state in the market. You know, maybe Adlinson hasn't come yet. Maybe there's a, there's really strong footfall right now. And I think there's a bit of a sense of complacency sometimes. I think my, my caution is that this stuff is happening. The world is changing. It's going to hit every market eventually. The best thing to do rather than to kind of bury your head in the sand and deny it is to actually like get prepared and get ahead of the curve and future-proof your business. So I think that that's what I'd suggest is that the world's changing, you know, get with the change. If you do and embrace it, you can do it in a really wonderful way that enables you to do the stuff you love and also protects your business for the future. If you ignore it and forget about it, it might be too late. Great closing remarks, yeah. I would mm. say. Yeah. Uh, one thing that struck me as a final question, you, you guys have been able to grow 3,000%. So you've really Over, over two years or so. It was kind of a press release stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think that was before. early, beginning of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and we going quick. Yeah, and I think you touched upon uh, many different recipes of success, like a, a community that is, is, is really loyal yeah. and are fans of the boutiques you're representing. Uh, also, um, yeah, in an internationalization, um, you've, you've uh, grown in, into different markets and you're really showing those boutiques with products that aren't for sale on other platforms, mm -hmm. on other marketplaces. Um, I think what you also explained about your engineering capabilities, that's, that's impressive. Uh, I think you strike the right balance between mm -hmm commercial assets in the company and uh, tech uh, capabilities. Is there something we're missing here? Is that the secret to <laughs> the secret recipe to your success or is there uh, something else that, 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 that helped you grow 3000%? Sounds a bit wishy-washy, but I, I see it's just the mission. I, it's, it's, we're a mission-led business. They, every single person that works for Trevor really cares about what we do. Yeah. And I think that, that helps you when you apply that lens and you have a purpose and you have a mission you just you tend to make better decisions because you're not making necessary decisions for the short term like we need to grow we need to change things but you're also thinking like we want to secure the future for our community of shops we really care about them now there's if you look at that growth metric you could think well look we probably just signed loads and loads more shops but actually another metric in, internally that we pay very close attention to is what revenue per shop we're doing so we're always making sure we're not just growing by adding products from different shops we're also growing revenue per shop and so we're having more and more meaningful mm. um impact for the, each shop that we work with um and it's it's just really nice i think definitely one of the reasons i joined the business a couple of years ago was i i, I just went and walked into a bunch of our early shops that we'd started working with, just talked to them about what it was like being on Truva. And it was the stories that they, they told me that made me think that this is an amazing business. Like we're doing great things for the shops that we work for. And therefore you can derive purpose, you can derive meaning. I think that motivates you to make good decisions. Cool. Impressive. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Brilliant. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you for being our guest number 13. And I'm pretty sure there's gonna Lucky some, sign, some, sign up, <laughs> yes, some, some, some sign ups for uh, Truva out yeah. of the Dutch and the German market. But we're, we're pretty sure you're gonna set up shop uh, soon in Kreuzberg, for example. Okay, cool. Thanks a lot. Great. Thank you.